There's always a part of us that wants to believe that the Christian life, if lived correctly, should be easy. There's a part of us that thinks or believes or wishes that the Christian life should be easy. And Jesus did say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But he also said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's right. That's not printed on too many t-shirts. I don't see any t-shirts out here. It's not printed on too many bumper stickers. There's not a lot of wall art that has that scripture on it. And that's not a popular meme on Facebook. But Jesus always adds good news to the bad news. He says, do not fear I have overcome the world. This morning we're going to look at scripture together that affirm these and the example of Jesus. It affirms these truths in his life and it's meant to have an effect on our life. You can turn with me to Luke chapter 4 and in your Bible or your app. We'll mostly be spending our time there in Luke chapter 4 this morning. Whatever your preferred version is, your favorite, NIV or ESV or NLT or KFC. All right, more, more than last service, a couple of you got that. Thanks to Derek, appreciate you, Derek. I'm using the NIV version this morning. Luke 4 begins with a relentless onslaught of Satan towards Jesus out in the wilderness. It's, a, it's where Satan is throwing all that he has to tempt, to entice, to overwhelm, to frustrate, to diminish Jesus. How many of you know by now that Satan never really gives up? He hasn't yet. He's going to one day. But he doesn't really give up. But in Luke 4 verse 13, it tells us that he left Jesus until an opportune time. Coming out of the wilderness, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and Satan left him, another version says, until a more opportune time, but he never really gives up. He continues to come after us with temptation and here he's switching from a short game to a long game. Some of you may recall the short game season in your lives where Satan has just tried to throw everything at you at once from every direction in every way to tempt you, frustrate you, discourage you, beat you down. The Bible says to steal, kill, and to destroy and he's set on it. He's determined. He may let up, but he doesn't give up. And Jesus doesn't even bend. He doesn't even bend. How many of you know that if he can't win in the short game, that he'll still do all that he can in his effort to not quit and not to give up? He'll do whatever he can to get in and to affect your attitude at least. 
If he can't get you to give in to a temptation, he tries to sneak into your thinking and to your inner parts and whisper lies and deception and discouragement and try and shape your attitude. Any of you recall that? It's just me. Big time. I mean, almost like in a moment. Sometimes I can recognize how I just went trucking down this slippery slope. I was fine. I was good. I, was, I had him blocked. I had him defended. And then all of a sudden, and your attitude just starts tanking with the whispers and the lies and the onslaught coming from him, trying to take you in the wrong direction. I don't want to make an idol out of easy this morning, but far too many of us want life to be easy. Can we admit that? We want life to be easy. How many of you would agree with me, and i preparing for a resounding noise from you in the auditorium. How many of you would agree with me, it's not easy to follow Jesus? It's not easy. Easy is not the point. It's not easy to follow Jesus. Listen to these statements. Just because life is easy is no sign you're headed in the right direction. Just because life is easy is no sign you're headed in the right direction. But just because life is hard is also no sign you're headed in the wrong direction. And yet, how many of us have those feelings? Something's got to be wrong. What's wrong? What am I doing wrong? What have I done? What have I thought? What have I said? Jesus did everything right. And yet, we have to admit, he faced tremendous persecution. Things were very difficult, even though he was doing everything right. At times, Jesus was popular. And at other times, he was tremendously unpopular. It wasn't popularity that Jesus was going for. Through it all, popular or unpopular, through a good message, through an incredible miracle, through the way he was being treated or exalted, Jesus continued to just be Jesus. To not waver from his sole purpose, his one purpose, and that is to me, is to be, is to remain faithful to his heavenly father. To remain faithful. A pursuit of faithfulness. His motivation was to please his heavenly father. And he knew he had to leave the results to his heavenly father. Results, even though the world will tell you different, results were not the goal. However it turned out, whatever the possibilities may be, However it would turn out, Jesus remained steadfast on the purpose, on the intention, on the pursuit of pleasing and remaining faithful to his heavenly Father. I want you this morning as we look at Luke chapter 4 to think about that this morning. The idea that faithfulness is leaving the results to God. Not worrying about the outcome. 
Not worrying about what could happen, what's going to happen, however it happens. Remaining faithful to God. In Luke chapter 4, what we're about to look at is Jesus' first recorded sermon according to Luke. Not his first sermon, because Luke makes it clear that Jesus has been traveling throughout Galilee. That he's actually based, his home base is in Capernaum. And his hometown, where he grew up as a boy, is now receiving him back. And initially, they're receiving the hometown boy back to town. A hometown boy that they've heard about. That they've heard about the renown he's creating as a rabbi. They've been hearing about the great miracles, the great wonders that Jesus has been doing out throughout Galilee. And almost like, why, where's he been? Why, why hasn't he come back? No, he's coming back. He'll, he'll be back this Sunday. He'll be with us this Sunday. You don't want to miss December 12th. Right? At first, he's received like the lovable hometown boy who'd grown up in Nazareth. But his sermon ends with his attempted homicide in his own hometown. No joke. At this moment, if I had to give a title to this message out of Luke chapter 4, it'd probably be, that escalated quickly. Wow. Can we read it together? Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. Starting in verse 16, it says, He, Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the book, the prophet Isaiah, was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20 says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words. All were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do hear in your hometown what you have heard that you did, that we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah 
was not sent in any sent to any of them but to one widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built. Honestly, I read that and I think of Mount Helena. In order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Wow. The Gospel of Luke is a gospel of the Holy Spirit. Luke is intentional about including and pointing out the person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Not just in his version of the gospel, but he writes the second edition, right? The book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Church, but it's also been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It is credit to, it's, it is the validation of the third person of the Trinity. This is the Holy Spirit amongst us. And Luke's pointing out the role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life, not just for Jesus, but for you and I. Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, Luke makes sure to point out. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And in verse 14, we learn that Jesus came out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke is not just focused on Jesus. He's emphasizing the role, the function, and the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus began to minister throughout Galilee in the place where he was a regular, as was his custom. In whatever city, whatever town that he was in, was to be at church on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day, since he was young, young, young boy, was to be at the synagogue. And that's where he decided to start his ministry, to start preaching and teaching, to start exercising the Holy Spirit in his life. He chose the synagogue. If Jesus chose to be there regularly, as was his custom, I'm grateful that you're here today. You must somehow realize that it's important for you to be at church on what now we use or celebrate as the Sabbath day. And for Jesus, it was just what was expected. It's the place that he frequented and was a regular. Jesus' hometown was in the town of Capernaum, where he spent a lot of time preaching, an unknown amount of time preaching in the region. This isn't his first message, it's the first recorded message. And in that town, or in that area, based out of Capernaum, now getting ready to visit Nazareth, he's spending a lot of time in all, this, all these various synagogues. And what Jesus would have seen in these synagogues is actually, believe it or not, pretty typical of somewhat what you see here on a Sunday morning now, still, all these years later. 
their service in the synagogue had three parts. What did we begin with this morning? With what? With worship. They would begin with prayer of worship. Some of those would be song. Some of those prayers would be to song, to a musical instrument or not. Some of those would just be prayed in front of the congregation and they're gathered together. But wherever throughout this land of Galilee, about a 50-mile radius, wherever 10 or more families lived, there needed to be a synagogue. The synagogue was not the temple. It was a reflection of the temple. But it was a place for the Jewish people to gather and to come together in worship and in prayer. And following worship and prayer would be the third part. The third part would be where someone would stand up. They would be asked to read scripture. In these synagogues, in these small towns or large towns, there wasn't a professional minister. There wasn't a staff. It was more like having a president of an organization. And that person seriously would ask some dignified person in the group to stand up, come up. From the cabinet, they would reach out and grab the scrolls. There wasn't a book or a Bible. It was a rack, a very valuable rack of handwritten scriptures that someone wrote on really expensive, beautiful artwork, paper kept in a cabinet. And they'd pull from that and hand them something to read that day. That would be the reading, which often happened while someone was standing. In the second part, someone would be asked to teach and they'd share something based on that scripture and on that reading. Oftentimes to do that, you would have found that that person would sit into a seat. Some of you, this may take you back a ways. I'm too young to remember when at college campuses and universities, the professor actually gave the lecture from sitting in the professor's chair. Not standing at a lectern or moving about a stage in the synagogues, that was the person who read the scripture and then the person would take a seat to share the teaching. And this is what things were like, would have been like in the synagogues that Jesus was touring. But in addition to bringing the teaching and bringing their thoughts on those scripture, that person actually would be partly responsible for leading what would happen in that meeting. Maybe some of you remember some in our past, some of our coffee talk Sundays, which honestly were kind of similar. Someone would get up and share 15, 20 minutes on a part of scripture, some of their thoughts, and also turn it over to small group discussion. The large group would move to kind of small group discussions. And so there'd be more of an interaction and a discussion time in connection with the, with the teaching. Sometimes it still happens in Jewish churches today, and it's still a format that some of them follow. I have a friend who was recently in in Moldova, in the country of Moldova, between Romania and the Ukraine, where he preached and he was asked to come share at a messianic Jewish community in Moldova. And that was the format of the service still today. Some of you may know that we may have that opportunity here in Helena again one day. There's much talk and an organization formed to purchase the old synagogue building next to the, near the cathedral there from the Catholics and to restore a Jewish 
community of worship here in town. But as was his custom, Jesus had come back to his hometown and he needed to be at the synagogue. He wanted to be at the synagogue. That's the place that he wanted to be. And if he's going to be there, it's kind of like the homeboy, the hometown boy that you've heard about is back in town. Who else are we going to ask to read the scriptures? Who else are we going to hear from? I've heard a lot of good things. Come on, give us what you got. And Jesus is received like the hometown boy who's grown up. And he's probably got a few things to say to us. He's probably got a few things he could show us. He built a reputation, or a reputation followed him, of being a remarkable rabbi. One who spoke like nobody else on the scriptures, but also a miracle worker. And he was back in town. Handed the scrolls. I can't imagine, if you will, scrolling fumbling through that scroll, looking for the scripture that you're looking for to get to the chapter of Isaiah 61. So you could read these verses. Read with me. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. That refers to the Trinity. The spirit of the sovereign Lord, the one who is Lord, is on me. I can imagine, I hope you can, he's not just reading scripture. It's not a typical reading. Jesus is also making an announcement. He's doing what he's about to get to in the scripture. He's proclaiming. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to build up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The end. If you're reading along or looking on the screen, you notice that's not the end. Jesus didn't just stop in the message part of the scripture, the points of the scripture. He didn't just Stop in that section. He stopped in the middle of a verse. In the middle of a verse that would have normally been translated from what he was speaking in, from the original, what he was reading from the scroll, scroll probably would have been translated in Arabic and Greek by someone right after he spoke, and he just stopped in the middle of the verse. Can you imagine being that person? Are you going to finish that before? Or is it my time now or not? But he just stopped. Why did Jesus stop there? Jesus does not read the portion before you that says, The day of the vengeance of our God. It's not that Jesus didn't believe in the judgment of God or God's vengeance, he definitely preached on it later and quite extensively. But his mission and what he's announcing and what he's proclaiming is God's favor, is God's blessing, is God's grace. The primary purpose of Jesus' mission is to proclaim 
the good news of Jesus Christ. In the minds of the first century Palestinians, the first century Jewish people, at Jesus' time, the day of the Lord had a twofold meaning. It meant something for us and something for the rest of them. That something for us is God's favor, is God's blessing, is God's grace, because we deserve it, because God said it. And yet the day of the vengeance of our God also meant judgment. And our enemies are going to get what they deserve. They're going to get what they've been storing up all this time, because our God, he's the one true sovereign, almighty God, and they're going to get a licking. But Jesus doesn't recite that line intentionally. It's not his mission to extend God's wrath, but to extend God's favor. Jesus interrupts their understanding, and he interrupts their thinking, not with just stopping at that scripture. He stops at that scripture and you read with me, he took a seat. It wasn't like him taking a seat out here like I first read it, like I've read it numerous times. I think, oh, he got up and read and took a seat, and then they're like, oh, why, that was so good. Why don't you get up here and tell us what you think? No, he, he took this seat. And the re- first recorded message of Jesus is one of his shortest. It's not the Sermon on the Mount. One of the longest, several chapters long, it's the shortest anointing is on the Messiah to preach and teach God's word in a way that will lift up the lowly in four ways. He will preach good news to the poor. He will set prisoners free. He'll restore sight to the blind. And he'll liberate the bullied and the oppressed. The year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the year of Jubilee, Most of you or some of you would be familiar with that. That's the 50th year. That's a year that does those things, that provides a new start. If you were enslaved in the 50th year, if you made it till then, on the Jewish calendar, then you're free. You can start over. If you've lost everything, if you've racked up massive amounts of debt, it's a time to start over. And Jesus, what he's saying He's not just talking about a year. He's talking about a time and a period that you and I still live in. A time that we can start over with God. We can start a relationship, a personal relationship of knowing a Savior. Of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are in that year that Jesus was proclaiming. There's access in this year to start over to begin a relationship. And for him, it was a time period when things that were wrong would be set right for the poor, for the brokenhearted, for the captives, for the prisoners. When Jesus finished reading, he sat down and once seated, the sermon Jesus gives, it says, starts like this. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. When I read that and I read the subsequent scriptures, I actually think 
He probably said other things. It started with, he began with. That phrase, that's what Luke records. Somehow that's a summation of what Jesus said there in a chunk before he goes back to some other scriptures. And so far their responses are this in verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the hometown boy. They're amazed. Wow. Isn't this, isn't this Joseph's son? It's almost like has to just turn to the discussion period. It says they tur- another version says they turn to one another and start whispering. Isn't this Joseph's son? They all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. At this point, Jesus had raised their eyebrows, but not their blood pressure, which was about to rise. He had interrupted their thoughts and their understanding by dropping the part of the verse that they would have liked to have heard as well. But what he's about to say is even more stifling. And as he says it, he knows there's a skeptical spirit in the room. He knows that there's skepticism about who is this boy? Who is this guy? He knows that there's a lack of faith. There's religiosity. There's sacrament. There's gathering. There's a treasuring of God's word, but there's something missing. And Jesus is speaking to it, and he's calling it out, even though it's going to be unpopular. What there is, well, we learn elsewhere in Scripture that Jesus said that he could not, he could do no great miracles in Nazareth because of their faith. He couldn't do miracles there because of their lack of faith. A primary barrier to being able to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what you believe about or in God, a barrier to receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ is self-protective unbelief. And Nazareth was overrun with it. A self-protective unbelief. What do I mean by self-protected unbelief? It's where you guard or protect your current system of belief or understanding of God through defending, through denying, or refusing to accept any other further truth, even if God himself is conveying or demonstrating the truth. It's often an attitude. In terms of God, they already know it all. Even if God may be the one communicating truth. In our protective unbelief, we may be actually guarding our own self-directed version of truth. I can tell what's true and what's not true. I know what I've experienced. I know how God works. I really know how God works in church. And God doesn't work that way. That's, that's not how God works. That doesn't happen. It can't happen like that. Counselors often develop an intuitive feeling about traumatized individuals, a sixth sense about the client's fears, about their terrors, their feelings of being threatened that result in self-protectedness. 
I think, some things that happened in Nazareth. There was some self-protectedness that garnered unbelief, that stifled, that minimized faith and prevented Jesus from doing some of the things they expected him to do because he was back in town. In response to their lack of faith, the blood pressure is about to go up. In response to the lack of faith, Jesus would quote the proverb, no prophet is received in his own hometown. In other words, the hardest place to preach is among those who think they know everything they need to know from you or about you. Who would know more and who would know better? Who would think they would know more or better? Who would think that they would know it all about Jesus than the hometown? Jesus continues by saying, you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. Jesus seems to be referencing their desire, their want to see him do something miraculous like he had done in Capernaum and other places around Galilee. Why not here? But there can't be an open heaven over closed hearts. Over hearts that are closed and without faith. Can you feel it? Things are trending down in Nazareth. First recorded message, not going so well. Few words or not. But they weren't a murderous mob yet. It's what Jesus said next that really threw them into a tizzy that led to a rage. Jesus quickly referenced two Old Testament stories they no doubt would have been familiar with. More familiar than you and I, really. But it's critical to recognize what would have enraged them. What enraged them was that the characters of those two two Old Testament stories that weren't proverbs, that weren't parables that Jesus was making up on the fly, so suppose one day. But he chooses to point out two scriptures, two Old Testament stories that highlight the fact of faith and obedience of people who were not Jewish, who were Gentile who did not have a Jewish faith. In the hometown you say you do it? In the synagogue, Jesus, what are you thinking? I just want to please him. I I just want to remain faithful. And there's some things that are askew here. They want to hear that second line so bad. But I have to point out some other things. Can I, can I change the proposed title of the message? I, rather than, wow, that escalated fast. What about this changes everything? What if they could have recognized and seen and heard how Jesus was changing everything? To believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, to follow the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just God and who you think he is, what you've experienced. There has to be faith. There has to be obedience. 
even when it means everything's about to change. If there's anything God's good at, it's changing the things that seem unchangeable, that seem like they'll never change. That person will never get it. Think about some of the people for a moment that you know, that you think they'll never change. Not true with God. There's countless stories throughout the Bible that people thought the same thing of those people. And because of Jesus, everything changed. I think they had forgotten. You can turn with me to Genesis 12 if you want. I think they had forgotten the big picture. They had lost track of the big picture of what God had said he was doing in all time, clear back in the beginning, back in Genesis. They fixated on certain portions of the scripture and said, we've got it figured out. And yet, forgot the big picture. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord has said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. Sounds great, God. Keep it going. Back that truck up. Yes, amen. Where you at? (laughs) Sounds so good, doesn't it? Yeah, I love it. Life should be easy. Following Jesus should be so easy. Come on, bring it. I will bless those who bless you and curse whoever curses you. Perfect, good, end up, stop there. No. The second half of verse 3 says this, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples. The fact is the Messiah standing before them was not just what they thought he was going to be. He wasn't just the king of Israel. He wasn't just the ruler of Israel who would cause Israel to rise up like Rome had done, like Babylon had done, like the Philistines had done. He already was the universal king. Without any accomplishments, he already was the ruler of the universe. He already was the king of every tongue, of every tribe, of every nation. And he's saying, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. They forgot the big picture. Fixated on what seemed like it would be best for them. What would work out well. And what they would protect. In order to self-protect, they forgot the mission that God was on. And I'm sorry, when I read that, when I stand even here before you and speak, I'm thinking, what in the world am I missing, God? What am I missing? Your same spirit that Jesus said has anointed him to proclaim those things, that same spirit, your word says, is resident in me. It's what brought grace and favor, conviction but freedom, sight to my own blind eyes, God, what am I missing? What about the big picture am I missing? Because I know God wants to use me and he wants to you use you every bit as much as he used Jesus. He wants to use you to reach people. It's his mission. It's his mission that he gives us through the power of the Holy Spirit 
through the death and the resurrection, the proclamation of Jesus Christ in my life and in your life, that he says, you're on mission. Live on mission. As we draw to a close here, I'm, I want to quickly cover some principles that I think are important for us. We're in a close of a season here, in the close of a year, we're headed into the holidays. As the elders and JR has been sharing in the past weeks, we're headed into a new season, we believe. As a community of believers, as Mount Helena Community Church, we're headed into a new season, and you and I are headed into a new year. What are some principles we can draw from today? First, Jesus came for our bad news. Jesus came for our broken hearts. And Jesus came to the broken places, to come to the broken places of our lives. He didn't come for perfection. He didn't come for us to have it all together. He came to be the good news to our bad news. He came to change everything. As a friend told me just this week, which caught me off guard and I had to just settle on for a while. Jesus is my sadness taker. The idea that Jesus came for my bad news. He takes my sadness. That just caught me off guard. I don't think I'd ever heard someone say something like that. Maybe sounds so simple, but it's really profound. Second, with the Spirit of God in us, we're able to be living the mission of Jesus Christ. With the Holy Spirit in us, we're able to live that mission of Jesus Christ. We believe that here at Mount Helena. What you've heard from Jeff last week and even JR the week before that is that our life is actually for others. It's to have an impact on us. Jesus is saying the same thing. Even in my imperfections, my imperfections don't disqualify me. Because of Jesus, they qualify me. It's who Jesus came for. Just like Jesus, our purpose is to be found helping others. Instead of praying, bless me, he's empowered us to pray, bless through me. I believe Robert Morris would say a big key to living an abundant life or living abundantly is to remember a good way to make your life better is to make someone else's life better. A good way to make your life better is to make someone else's life better. And I don't know anybody sitting in this room that could say, I don't know anybody that could use encouragement. I don't know anybody worse off than me that I could help, that I could strengthen, that I could encourage, that I could give to, that I could help in some way. Third, God's love is bigger than we can imagine. That Messiah that stood before them, as I said earlier, was bigger than any border they could imagine. To them, he was the king of Israel, and with his rule, they'd have universal rule. He's already got it. He's the Messiah. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And just the same today, his love is bigger than any of us can imagine bigger than any of the stories that we've read in the Bible or heard from other people. From the beginning of time till now, God still exceeds and his love still 
prevails. And lastly, I see that opposition and hardship doesn't mean that you're on the wrong path. That opposition or hardship doesn't mean you're on the wrong path. Jesus' first sermon, first recorded sermon, did not go well by human standards. But failure is never meant to be final. In his youth, Abraham Lincoln went to war a captain and returned a private. Abraham Lincoln was demoted in a couple of scenarios and situations. He also started many failed businesses, went bankrupt twice, and lost 26 campaigns for public office. But he believed that failure wasn't meant to be final. And he wanted to please one. He wanted to remain faithful to one. When Fred Astaire got his first screen test with MGM, the evaluation read like this. Can't act, can't sing, slightly bald, not handsome, can't, can dance a little. Thanks for the review. Fred Astaire eventually would keep that note in his home in Beverly Hills to remind him of the rocky start, of the beginning, of failure that wasn't meant to be final. It's well known that Stephen King's first manuscript, Carrie, was rejected by 30 publishers. He grew tired of the rejection, and he threw his work in the garbage. His wife is the one who fished it out and encouraged him to keep submitting it, to resubmit it. He's one of the best-selling authors of all time. Jesus' example is the ultimate. Is the ultimate. Maybe you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life. I would love to visit with you today. If you would like to visit with somebody, I'd love the opportunity to answer any questions that you may have. And even pray with you. Maybe like those people in Jesus' hometown who were gathered in the synagogue today, maybe you've invited Jesus at some point along the line. But maybe he's ticked you off somewhere along the way. you got a bad attitude and you'd do well to straighten it out today. I'd be happy to visit with you. There'll be a prayer team available here after service. They would love to pray for you. And walk through that with you. But maybe you would like to respond like I want to continue responding out of faith and obedience to Jesus. If my main purpose is to remain faithful to him, then it's significant that I respond with faith and with obedience. If you want to do that in some way today, again, the prayer team would love to respond with you and encourage you and lead you in that. Would you stand with me as we close and pray together. Are you okay? Are you encouraged? You two are anointed. You have that same spirit resident in you that's for you, that wants to enable you, that has enabled you and empowered you to have the level of impact that Jesus 
had on the lives of ordinary people like are around you. Jesus, we want to follow you without reservation. God, without bad attitudes and bad assessments and stubbornness, without expectation of recognition or earthly success, we want to continue following you for who you are. You, Jesus, being Jesus and being our Messiah, we want to follow your truth, not our version of truth. I pray that you'd put your spirit in us to the fullness that we would proclaim your good news to the brokenhearted, to the captives, to those less off than us, that we would declare your grace and your favor because we're in the year. We're in the time of access, personal access with you. And it's so much more important than the things that this divided world says needs our attention. God, I pray you would give us attention and focus upon you in this season, in this new season to come. God, we just continue to align ourselves with you and be fully on mission with you in Jesus' name. Amen.